Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. As always, if you're watching this on YouTube, I would really appreciate if you could hit that like button, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, I'd be really grateful for a five-star review. Now, as always, we've got an absolutely fantastic guest here today. Ash, it's great to see you. Hey, good to meet you, Alex. Great to be here. And let's... Uh... Let's see if we can make this a five-star review. Eh? <laughs> Absolutely, Ash. So for those out there who don't know much about you, if you could tell us a little bit about your background and some of your career highlights. Yeah, sure. So uh, so Ash Brinsford, I've been selling for 20 years. But really, before that, my main passion in life has been sport. So I've, I've played sport all my life until these days where I'm more of a watcher. But the teamwork, the camaraderie, the competition, the winning, the losing together... And then the friendships that have kind of ensued from sport have, have really helped me with my career. It seems weird actually talking about a career when you're only 40. <laughs> but yeah, 20 years in sales and I've basically done every job, Alex, from data entry through to SDR work, through to field work, right the way through to running a 120-person organization across Europe. Wow. So Ash, you've spoken a bit there about your sporting background and, and how actually that's been pretty instrumental in your career when you look ahead. So let's just unpack a bit more about how sports has actually played such a staple role in both your personal and your professional life. Just walk us into what that was like. Yeah, sure. So, um, so yeah, I remember the days of, you know, the sun shining at school, couldn't wait to get out of school and, and, and start playing sport. I think the thing that I, I really loved, Alex, though, was the the teamwork, the camaraderie, you know, winning together as a team, the friendships that were built on the field, the battle. Like it just it just appealed to me, and and all of those all of those little facets within sport just really appealed to me. And I've I've basically taken that into the into the work environment from there. Awesome, awesome. It sounds uh, sounds like fun, right? So you also mentioned the fact that you've pretty much done every role under the sun, from being an SDR, of course now. Now you're a top tier leader. So let's start with those earlier days, whether it was you being an SDR or just your first couple of roles in sales. Just take us into those moments. Why did you actually end up getting into sales? And then what was the first experience like? Yeah, so uh, I remember my first experience. We were, were in a little office in Aldermaston and uh, we were selling an offline medical information system to GPs and healthcare professionals. Like, can you imagine like getting time with GPs like now even when you've got an illness it's so difficult but imagine way back then 20 years ago trying to sell an offline medical information system to GPs that didn't even have computers at the time it was just it was just so difficult but it, I remember doing it and just absolutely loving it we had a great team great camaraderie we used to post numbers on the board each day and you wouldn't stop you'd get in at nine o'clock you'd pick the phone up you'd speak to practice managers suddenly you'd get a gp on the phone and it was like you'd won the lottery it was just an amazing experience obviously full of no's full of disappointments full of people putting the phone down on you but just had to keep going through that and i remember we we were sort of paid i think it was about 10 or eleven thousand pound a year right? That was our salary. And at the end of each week, there was the ability to, to kind of earn 200 pound at the end of each week. And that just felt, I mean, when you, when you got to the end of the week and you'd hit your target and you'd made your 200 pound, that was like a, being a payday millionaire. 
It was just phenomenal. Just having the cash there in a brown envelope, it was just fantastic. And I took it from there, Alex. Obviously, that's what really gave me the bug was that ability to overachieve a basic salary. And I took it from there, went into distribution. So that was that was, that was Computer 2000, worked there for four years. That was five and a half hours on the phone. Most of it was inbound, so it was different. It was a different type of selling. So I'd been used to outbound cold calling. Suddenly now I'm getting a swash of inbound, right? So it was just about, it was just about putting the effort in, doing your five hours, doing your five and a half hours, doing your six hours on the phone and achieving from there. The people that achieved were putting those numbers in. The people that weren't were the guys that were doing one, two, three hours and making excuses and going out for cigarette breaks and everything else. So those were the early days. And and that kind of hard work, endeavor and everything else is still true to me and true to my core right now. I, you know, I kind of learned it the hard way there. So Ash, that's, that's really interesting. Now, one of the things I'm curious about is we could kind of split things into two different eras in a certain regard where that previous era that, that you've spoken about, you know, hard work was on the front line, tenacity, running through walls, going out there and making it happen, getting the dials done. We look at the today era and sometimes, you know, people throw out the words in, entitled or the amount of technology that's available and sometimes just the mentality being different. I'd love to get your perspective on whether that's something that that you've seen, you've observed, really what your perspective on that whole paradigm is? Yeah, great question, Alex. So look, I, I feel like there's still a load of hard workers out there, but we live in an era now where everything's on demand. Things are easy. It's easy to order a takeaway and get it delivered to your house. It's easy to consume on-demand television. You remember us in our day, Alex, we, we probably had four terrestrial TV programs and we had to wait for our television program to come on that we wanted to watch. It wasn't a case of just going to Netflix and having a whole raft. You had to wait. The same with the same for selling, really. You look at it now and you've got, you know, you've got LinkedIn. LinkedIn has got millions and millions of people that and, and possible prospects that you'd like to contact to. Contact details are on there. It's it's just much easier than when we had a telephone possibly a yellow pages certainly not a website in those days so you had to you had to do the outreach in order to get the connections with people to find out where the projects were and where you could sell to so you know i do think i do think there's 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 many many hard working people out there these days i just think with this on demand culture that we've got to a position where it's easy to be lazy sometimes it's easy to to wait and and i had that Alex, a little bit as, as my career evolved, you know, I talked to you about the the five hours on the phone inbound. I talked to you previously about the, about the, you know, targeting GPs and healthcare professionals outbound. I then got to a stage where I went to, I went to a company called Semantic, you know, big, large cap security company. And I remember sitting on the inside sales floor and the floor was silent. We had like, I don't know, 40 sellers on that floor and, and you could hear a pin drop. So as a, as a new SDR coming in, you know, I was I was kind of scared to pick up the phone and and make mistakes. It was really difficult for a new guy coming in and 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 sort of, you know, can I speak to your IT security manager? Can I speak to your IT manager? And then fear of failure amongst amongst a whole room of people that that frankly weren't on the phone. And 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 at that time I I I got to a point where you know, I'd, I'd kind of be making 10, 20 calls a day and it wasn't good enough and I was failing. And I remember this one moment, Alex, where it was it was just as we'd as we were buying our first house, little little house in the middle of Basingstoke, 
and we used to, I used to go to, to Asda and I'd, I'd have my little budget for the week. And I remember it was Christmas and, uh, and I went there, load of stuff on the uh, conveyor belt and I'd miscalculated and I'd, 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 I'd put too much food on the conveyor belt and I couldn't afford the food that was on there. And, you know, I had a, I had a, a new girlfriend at the time and, and she was there. She's now my wife, a whole stack of people behind me. And I had to have the, the embarrassment of asking for items to be put back. And it was at that moment that I thought, hang on a minute, like something's got to give. That was my, that was my lowest ebb in effect in, 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 in my career. And I thought something's got to give here. I've got to pay mortgages. I've got to put food on the table, you know, and that isn't going to happen by me being silent on a silent sales floor. I've got to go in there tomorrow and I'm going to do a hundred calls. Nobody had ever seen like 20 calls being made on that floor. I'm going to go in and make a hundred calls and see what difference that makes. And, th- and we went from there. Man, that was a, a powerful moment there, Ash. And, you know, I think a lot of us can probably relate to, let me just call it that moment or a moment in, in life where, you know, it's almost like everything hits you at once. And there's this period of realization where you have a decision to make, you know, either you're going to go out there and you're going to make it happen, or you're just going to let life run you. You know, I can recall similar and, you know, longer term listeners will, will know the story about me dropping out of university first time round with a scholarship and uh, just remembering that moment going home and, and feeling extremely alone, thinking, wow, I've gone from having the world at my feet to now nothing. And I want to be a salesperson. And everyone's looking at sales as a sector and uh, as a space and saying, why would you want to be a salesperson? Why would you want to be in sales? You know, uh, just frowning upon the whole thing. And then here we are, you know, years and years later, being able to be on the elite level podcast, smile and, uh, and, and chop it up on the topic. So I just love the fact that you shared that story, Asha. I'm grateful for that. Now, let, let's zoom back into your, your career. So you're at this point going in there, tenacity, making these 100 calls, starting to make a name for yourself. Walk us into back into that moment. How does your career start to evolve from there? Yeah, so uh, so I remember it I remember it pretty vividly. So what was actually happening on that sales floor is that the inside salespeople weren't making the calls, but they were attaching themselves to run rate business that was coming in. We were fortunate at Semantic where there was a load of run rate business inside our mid-market that was just coming in. And those salespeople were attaching themselves to that. I'd looked at the end of the quarter and it was like everyone had done 200K, 250K, 300K. And I thought to myself, how is this happening with nothing being done on the sales floor? And then I very quickly worked it out. There was a, there was me and another guy actually there. I'll, I'll tell you about him in a second. But me and another guy there, they kind of worked out what was happening, that they were attaching themselves to run rate business. And we made a pact with each other. We said, look, we're going to keep doing our 100 calls a day and we're going to build bigger deals than, than the entire territory's run rate. And we're going to go out there. We're going to try and find find those those opportunities, implicate the pain, and and really drive a sales cycle properly, not just try to attach ourselves to to stuff that was already coming in from the channel. And we did that. What we did as well, though, in doing that, is we were able to we were able to pull in other people from the organisation. So as as deals get bigger, as deals get more exciting, it's natural that other leadership people, managers, senior leaders, and, and the like want to attach themselves to, to those successes, basically. And what, what I did, what I thought that I did pretty well, and it still stays with me today, is I opened myself up and I brought those leaders in, in with me in the deals, because A, they were more experienced, 
and B, they were able to get stuff done internally that was always going to help with the deal. So that's what I did. And in doing that, we were successful. We closed some business. In fact, me and the guy that I was telling you about, a guy called Lorenzo Alfano, is just absolutely killing it at the moment in SaaS sales. We ended up as the top two inside sales reps in Europe that year. And that was from a base halfway through the year being like the worst performers. So we built real deals. We built real champions inside our business and we were able to close significant transactions. But in doing that, we were then the first names on the team sheet for the promotion to external sales because senior leadership had basically become aware of our skills. Um, we'd built trust with them. And then it was very easy to transition from a telesales person to a field person. And and that was the key. And that would be my recommendation to any kind of SDR wanting to get out of SDR into field sales. And actually any field sales wanting to become a first line sales leader is bring people on the way with you. Go and get senior leadership with you. Go and earn your spurs with those guys. Make them feel part of a team and show that you can you can quarterback a situation. You can quarterback a deal. You know you can manage the resources both internally and with your customer. And just open yourselves up. Don't be the salespeople that sort of hide behind and opportunities not in Salesforce or anything like that. Open yourself up. Bring people with you, and from there you build the trust, and then they trust you to to do the next job and the next job and the next job. Yeah, so it's, it's a fascinating one. I love that concept of kind of bringing people with you because I think one of the biggest questions that a lot of uh, certainly our listeners have is is around promotions, right? People, as you say, SDRs want to become account execs, account execs want to become managers, uh, first line managers want to become second line managers. So it's a great principle that transcends all of those things. I do want to double tap on the account exec to manager transition, which I think is one of the one of the ones that probably has less clarity around. I think people would really value your perspective on because again, there's this discussion point around does elite level performance almost give you an automatic entitlement to that step up into management. So I'd love to get really an Ash's perspective. Mm. You know, what are the prerequisites and the key ingredients for you to know that someone is ready to take that step from account executive to first time manager? Sure. And and actually if you look at the if you look at the characteristics of the individual seller, the top performing internal seller or external seller, they're actually the same as a great frontline leader and a second line leader. You know, despite a lot of books that will have you say that the two skill sets are totally different and everything else, and there's a you know there's a there's a social presence at the moment that says to be a leader you need different capabilities than a seller. But if you actually break down what what a true seller's capabilities and characteristics look like, hard work, endeavour, curiosity, accountability, teamwork, quarterback in a deal, like all those elements there, being courageous. Right, all those elements there transcend to first line sales leadership and even to second line sales leadership. Every single one of those curiosity, hard work, endeavor, being courageous, like accountability, they're all the, they're all key words and key phrases and key characteristics of your of your great frontline sales leaders. So for me, it was quite an easy transition for me from one to the other. I was a top performing AE and then got given the opportunity to go lead a team. But it's also 
when when I'm now looking for for future leaders, I'm looking for those guys and girls that are out there with those characteristics that are top performers that with a tiny bit of coaching and direction can very easily make the step. What I find though, Alex, is, and you know, I don't know your opinion on this, but what I find is that companies aren't really geared up to helping those individuals. Because what happens is you basically get the call and they say, right, there's an opening and we want you to do what you did as an individual seller and we want you to teach a team of people and get them to your level. Off you go. Not much coaching, not much of a transition plan or anything like that. And you just kind of left to get on with it and you have to kind of figure out yourself. And that's the bit that I think is missing. I think the key characteristics from a, a, an individual contributor to a leader are very, very similar. It's the bit in between that I think companies are letting themselves down on. There's not enough coaching, training, a succession plan between the two. And that's where companies need to start thinking about that. Yeah, I, I would agree that there's definitely work to be done in that area for sure. When we look at training in general, right, there's there's a lot of uh, availability, I think, or, or growing availability of resource to SDRs and, and to account executives. But when you look at leadership, there's probably less there, right, and less of a focus on actually how do you become a great leader. So I think it is a really valid point. The the other side I, I would say to that is that, you know, as with anything, there's almost two halves to it. There's the uh, one half is the education piece, right? Getting the uh, coaching and the knowledge and the understanding. But the other side of that is actually what that person is bringing to the table as to why they want that role in the first place. You know, we see people wanting to become leaders because they think they were the top performing AE. So that's their token, as I mentioned earlier. But actually, do you care about developing talent? You know, do you want to help other people? You know, how do you think about building a great culture and fostering a great environment from which you can actually nurture that talent? So I feel like there's almost those two paradigms to it. And sometimes one that gets neglected over and above the other one. Curious to see, do, do you lean into what I'm saying there I, or do you see it differently? Yeah, absolutely. And we've all, Alex, worked with managers and leaders over the time that have that have done things that that we wouldn't now do in our roles, right? So if you if you think back, you know you get some leaders out there, some managers out there that just drive a desk, right? So these are the these are the the people that wake up on a Monday morning, great team meeting, set the goals for the week, let's get the team together, great. I call them bookend managers. So they 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 wake up, get excited on a Monday. And then suddenly on the Thursday or Friday, when it's time to forecast, they're up again. And it's, hey, what have you done for me lately? Where's the numbers? What are you doing? What's the next steps? What's the implication here or the pain you're driving here? And why haven't you got a champion over there? And my view, mate, is that it's about what gets done between those days and between those those two situations, Monday morning sales meeting and Friday forecast, that really where the rubber hits the road. That that's the That's the area where I think is a great, AE, as you were, and and the others have been that have become managers, as a great AE, that's the stuff that you're good at. Going and seeing the customers. When you turn up to meetings, have other customer context that you can bring to those meetings. So bring value to those meetings when you're in with your reps. And you get that because you've got such a great purview across many different customer conversations as the leader, 
you can bring those to bear in the meeting. Here, here's how we solved a problem in this large bank, or this retailer was able to drive efficiency of X by doing this. That's that's your job. Your job, I believe, is to be in the trenches with your team, protect your team, accelerate opportunities with your team, and just be accountable. Again, that word accountable. But being accountable isn't about showing up on a Monday for a team meeting and then showing back up on a Friday for a forecast. Absolutely. Yeah, completely with you, Ash, on that one. And uh, I like the way you describe, what was it, bookkeeper? A bookend manager. A bookend yeah, manager. two sides of the week, I love Monday it. and Friday. I love it. I'm going to have to remember that one <laughs> moving forward. I'd also be remiss not to say that because we're talking about sales education, as some people know out there now, I recently, of course, joined Sales Impact Academy to really try and solve against some of this stuff. So I'd be remiss knowing you've got your island t-shirt on there oh, not yes. to uh, also represent sales impact academy so salesimpact.io be sure to check it out for your go-to-market education now let's go back to your career here ash because uh, semantic you had a long run and again we're talking a lot about eras here and we're in an era where tenure of i think you were eight years or in and around that time period or maybe even longer isn't as commonplace now as it was then so why did you stay as long as you did and maybe just walk us through some of the milestones of that growth journey yeah it's a great question alex so I think I think here's my answer to that question. When you become fully vested in something and when you've been given an opportunity and you've developed trust with your compadres, with your colleagues, with your managers, with the wider business, and you feel really bought into something, you feel really accountable towards something, it's then very difficult to leave. And if you layer on top of that, um, for me, I was fortunate enough to receive promotions literally every 19 months to two years every every single two-year anniversary i was doing a different job so i started in mid-marketing as an sdr i then moved to commercial sales they then took me from commercial sales and put me into a into a hunter team where companies have big propensity to spend but have never done so so i did that we did an okay job there and then we moved up and and it was and it was running the biggest accounts in the company and then it was global account management and then it was and then it was first line sales leadership and then it was second line so there was always a new challenge for me alex and because because i'd built that trust by being accountable by producing results that really kept me locked into that company but look it wasn't it wasn't without its challenges big company like semantic you know, I ended up in a situation where I remember going in for an interview for my first big enterprise job, which is that hunter job I spoke about. And I was so nervous. Like my results spoke for themselves, but I was so nervous. And I messed up the interview and the, the VP of the UK said to the hiring manager, he said, I don't think this guy's ready. And the hiring manager was like, look, I've I've seen what this guy's done. I've seen the the customer relationships that he's built. I've seen the deals that he's written. Like I'm, re- I'm ready for, to, to put my, my, my neck on the block for this guy and and uh, the vp said well okay it's on your head be it so little areas like that right the way through to towards the end of my tenure at semantic when i'd taken on my first first line management job i remember i remember sitting in a in my first qbr and the senior leader said right okay ash what what are you going to do for us this year you know what's what's the number you're calling what what, what do you think you can uh, achieve and I put up 200% a target, which was a huge growth. It was just, you know, n- nobody had seen anything like it. And he said, oh, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. You d- I remember the words exactly, Alex. He said, he said, what you don't understand, fella, is, and I thought, oh, I don't like that. What you don't understand. And I said to him, I said, I said, I said, what do you mean? 
He said, well, what you don't understand, fella, is that, you know, you're now a senior leader and you've got a big quota. You're not going to do 200%. It's not like being an 80. And I turned around to him and I said, do you know what? If that's the case, then you'll have my resignation tomorrow. And yes, it was a bit of bravado on my side. (laughs) Of course it is. but, But I meant it. Because I didn't want to work in an organization where I was confined to doing 100 or 110%. Who knew whether that was good or bad or indifferent? I wanted to stretch us and create goals that people wanted to buy into and be part of and stretch us so far that, that we could really achieve fantastic results. I still remember our, our goal at the time when I set up my first team was to become the most performant and trusted team inside of cybersecurity. And how we were going to measure that tactically is that I wanted by year two to be the highest performance semantic team. I wanted to have the best customer references and we did it inside of 12 months. We took a team of people, 40 accounts in the UK outgrossed our whole entire New York business inside that first year. And we did it again and again and again. So, uh, yeah, I remember the, the leader that, that said that 110% wasn't possible was, uh, was pretty shocked when we came in at 228 and then 200 the following year, yeah. just delivered phenomenal growth. And they uh, they say numbers cure all, and my goodness, you know, you really cured it all in that in that regard, uh, Ash. What a story! I could I could sense a passion from you as you were kind of reciting that and reliving it. I think that the fact that you were thinking big, but not only thinking big, you were were acting big and operating big and getting people to rally around that way of thinking. It's incredibly powerful. And it's a bit like the, you know, the four minute mile, you know, everything is believed to be impossible until it's done. And then the moment it's done, all of a sudden, people start doing it time and time and time again. But it starts with belief and then it's followed up by action. And then ultimately, as mentioned, once you break through the floodgates, all of a sudden, people start being able to execute with a level of consistency. So thank you so much for sharing that story. Now, as we start to think about, you know, some of these roles that you've had, you know, I'm conscious on the podcast, we've actually spent less time talking about roles like being a global account manager within a company like a Symantec, for example. So I'd love to just double tap on that experience of actually selling to global accounts and really what that entailed for you, what maybe some of the, the secrets are behind being able to really be successful in a role of that caliber. Yes, that's a, a, a great question. And again, it starts with leading indicators and doing the right thing and doing the right behavior and getting around a customer. So, you know, true global account managers just don't deal with three or four people in an organization. You have to get so wide. You have to speak to people in all areas of the business to understand how that business is ticking, what makes that business tick, what is the real pains, what are the real areas of of growth opportunity, and take all that information that you gather and find the right people in those organizations to bring that to bear. And quite often, Alex, those people aren't the C-suite. You know, for us as, as salespeople, it's like, hey, get to the CIO, get to the CISO, get to the head of this and the head of that. But quite often you find pockets of real influence and real power that that haven't got the job title to match. So finding those people, finding those sort of, we've, we've all heard of the challenger sale. I like to think of it as the challenger customer. And finding those challenger customers inside of an organization and then being able to set those guys and girls up for success 
and really get those people bought into what you're trying to do has helped me immensely over over that period of time and then take basically almost help me do my job for me and take our proposition whatever it may be to an economic buyer where it where it gets procured so that would be one of my biggest tips that i think sometimes is ignored and the only way you get to find out about those people is to be really inquisitive and to do the hard work and graph like we talked about and getting around that organization, meeting people and, and, and putting the hard yards in. They're not just going to show themselves. In fact, those, those type of people are the ones that want to hide away and not, not be seen at all. They're the hardest guys. So yeah, that, that'd be one of my biggest tips. It, it actually just, um, just thinking about that, cause it's obviously been a few years since I did global account management, but it kind of takes me back to, um, another little story. One of my biggest failures in life and in business for sure. I remember it, I remember it pretty vividly. So we just had our first baby. I'm sleeping on the cold floor of our of our living room. It was like a wooden floor at the time and I'm sleeping on the floor on like this blow up bed and you know with my weight it, it used to it used to deflate every night. I'd end up on the floor like this and the next morning I'd be at the airport having to go to Hong Kong or or wherever. It was just just ridiculous from from one side to the other. But I remember, I remember this situation really vividly. I just picked up, I just picked up one of the big banks in the UK, and literally three months into my tenure, they decided to to replace our endpoint product. It's huge. It was huge. Everyone in our business, from the CEO downward, was was disappointed, right? As you could imagine. And I remember the call now from the chief security officer. I, I went outside, sat in my car, and got the call because the baby was crying and everything else. Sat in the car, and he said, "Ashley said." In your three months, you've you know you've, you've done a great job. Your team's done a great job, but we'd already made the decision to move. And I was like, ah. And I, I remember it a Monday morning, and I was waiting for the call all weekend to decide like whether we we stayed in or whether we'd lost. But the decision had already been made. And at that time, rather than sort of get defensive and and you know feel sorry for myself, I said to him at the time, I said, look, I said, don't worry. I said, you you know you've made a wise decision based on on what had happened previously. Like you haven't got the support from my organization that you should have done. You know, what I can commit to you right now, though, is we're going to double down and we're going to do more and more and more. And despite losing that, that endpoint, we're going to continue to educate your team. We're going to continue to, to try and be in the trenches with you. We'll help you even with the, the transition from one to the other to try and earn your trust again. And he couldn't believe it. He was like, I've, I've never heard anybody say that. Like, just just couldn't believe it. And I, I, I said, well, it's true. And and you'll see over the next coming months what I mean by that. And basically, Alex, that happened. And they rolled out the, the competitor, tried to roll it out. We continued in there. So we went, we flew around the world and we, and, and this is the global account management thing. We visited everyone that we could, everyone with any sort of influence, any sort of opinion, and we just discussed what our product could do. And we even tried to help with the with the move to the other product. So we did that. We we continued on. And then one day I got a call. And there was a there was a new power base in the organization. And I got a call. And and the guy the guy rang me up and said, Right, I need you in Canary Wharf tomorrow morning. We've had a massive issue. And I need you in in here. And I was like, Okay, all right. No time to speak now, but you know, be in tomorrow morning. Okay. So grab my technical guy, off we go. And we sit in this little room and we're overlooking all of Canary Wharf. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And he sat down and he said, he said, right. He said, tell me this. He said, we've had a massive issue with the new provider. Could you replace all of their technology and roll your latest product out within six weeks? We've had a, a, a blue screen issue. The board are, are annoyed. It's, it's even reached their level. 
And a lot of people's executive bonuses are based on this, getting this fixed. And the natural reaction as a salesperson is to say, yeah, of course we could do it. Like, give us a chance. Of course we could do it. But I, I, I didn't because I wasn't sure we could do it. And I turned to our techie guy, Paul Murgatroyd, the top, top guy. And I said, Paul, I said, can we, can we do this? And Paul just sat back like this. Hmm. I was thinking, come on, Paul, in a minute, like, at least say something. At least say we can. He was like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. I was like, right. I said, if Paul thinks we can do it, then, you know, we'll move heaven and earth to try and get it done. Long story short, between him, a few consultants, some backline guys, full support of our CEO, Dan Woods, we got that done inside of five weeks. Inside of five weeks, yeah. We rolled out to 150,000 devices in five weeks. No issues at all. They were happy. Then what happened was... Our business said to us, it was getting towards the end of the quarter, as we all know, end of quarter pressures. Hey, Ash, what's happening with that endpoint deal at that bank? And I said, look, I said, um, I said, guys, what, what we need to realize now is that we've got their trust, right? So rather than just going and hitting them with a, an endpoint bill, let's parlay that trust and look at other areas. Because they, they had 150 different vendors in there. There was a load of complexity, a load of different cost. They had vendors doing specific things that, that we could have done. I said, why don't we take that trust? We've got the executives behind us now. People are being paid their bonuses, and let's parlay that into something much bigger. And anyway, long story short, in, inside of four months, we took that situation. We didn't do the tactical endpoint deal, which still would have been a great deal for the company, and we delivered a $50 million deal. And it was a, it was was we think it's one of the biggest deals inside of cybersecurity SaaS. We did it inside of four months, and it was a deal that probably even impacted even a large cap company like Symantec, their share price at the time. It was just a phenomenal, phenomenal deal. And what we then did, Alex, is we didn't just rest on our laurels and take that deal like the guys perhaps had done previously with the endpoint, just left it thinking, oh, they'll, they'll never replace us. We continued to sell in there. We continued to drive value. We continued to explain to the customer the value that we'd driven. And we were able to do another $70 million over the next 18 months inside of that one account. Just phenomenal. Remember, the whole team that I'd, I'd inherited, I'd come in on a base of about 18 or 20 million revenue. So that's that. That's the size of of that. But it wow. it's it's interesting because it's it was the biggest disappointment. I remember it like yesterday on the cold floor, right the way through to staying with it, putting our hard yards in, committing, being accountable, delivering what we committed, and then getting the the, the great results that followed. Well, I mean, that was almost like a, a, a <laughs> mini mini masterclass in global account management, you know, I guess a small element of fortune in terms of the way things panned out. But ultimately, that component of, of trust, the way that you were actually able to look above the, the number, look above so many other aspects and actually lean in on the fact that you had built a trust bridge that could help you get so much more, but not only help you get so much more that could enable you to drive so much more value for the customer. There are a couple of moments I almost had a giggle to myself when you said I had a base of 18 to 20 million. I thought, oh, you were doing all right. Then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thought, we'd love for that now, wouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I thought you meant your basic salary. So that was uh, that yeah. was fun. Yeah. So no, th- thank you so much for for sharing that story. And I think that there was again so much to take out of that. Ash, we're going to have to fast forward and to really last couple of questions on the basis of everything that we got out of that. But you know, you've gone from being in some very significant companies in terms of size and employee count, etc., into a, a much younger business, right? That has a lot of potential. You're obviously moving at lightning pace, but it's a big, big difference, right? Big shift. So just walk us through your, your rationale uh, as to why you decided to take that step and maybe how you're feeling uh, since you've made that type of transition. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And uh, so fortunate and privileged to be given the opportunity to uh, to lead Europe for, for Ireland. Ireland of the enterprise browser, we're creating that brand new category. And, you know, just dead excited to be part of the first team on the ground it's myself it's Alison Black and Matt Smith to name to name the guys that, that that came with me and and try and take this try and take this category mainstream look it was it wasn't an easy decision you know as I said before I was there with you know 120 people in my organization full P&L management kind of like the, the I guess the top of a, a European salesperson could get to really before CRO but just the law, just the massive goal that this company has, the fact that the TAM is unparalleled and undefined, the fact that the biggest investors in the world have put money in, the fact that I'm working with leadership and, 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 and friends from the past that I trust and respect and, and, and love, and just, you know, just having all of that put into one and, and, and being part of that kind of founding team outside of America is just, was just so exciting. I just, I just couldn't ignore it. Like the opportunity came up and I, I kind of like, I was on my path and I like, oh yeah, okay. But then it just kept hitting me at the back of my head. And I thought, I, you know what? I cannot ignore this opportunity. I can't get to the end of my career having not done this. So yeah, that was the uh, that was some of the reasons, and, yeah. and I think we're in a we're in an amazing space that you know we've had a we've had 158 different conversations inside the first four and a half months of being there inside of Europe, and 99 percent of those conversations have been like, wow, this is different. This could change the way I do things. Well, seriously, you guys can do that. And you're right from being a guy that's worked in big companies, and it was always just an additive. Um, feature or function or the next version of this this is totally different and totally game-changing wow well what what a way to pitch pitch the solution there right i mean it was a great framing you know one thing that i know about you i guess offline ash is that you know you're back in the trenches now right you're not one of those leaders that kind of looks at things zoomed out and it's uh you know trying to get everyone to do the grunt work per se but like you're very much in the trenches making it happen living and breathing what you do and i think that it's um it's really admirable to be able to see you just make that transition to be able to shift yourself from managing such a significant team, as you said, with PL responsibility to getting back on the battlefield, so to speak, right? And uh, just getting after it every day, making it happen. You know, do you know what though, Alex, on, on that point, and, and you'll know this with the way that, that, that you go to market and the way that you, your, your character is driven, we never stop doing that. And I think that's the point. Like, you know, we talked about, we talked about the, the bookend manager, right? People like me and you have never stopped doing that. We, we consistently wake up every morning and think, right, who do we prospect to today? How do we move the ball forward? How do we increase this? Or, you know, that, that's, that's, that's how we're wired. So actually the transition from, you know, P&L responsibility, big team to 
over to you now, Ash, and, and your team and very small team, go, go do. It was actually quite easy. So I think, you know, that, that would be one of my big recommendations to, to young sales leaders is just don't lose that desire. Don't lose that waking up every morning thinking about, about prospecting and moving the ball forward because you're going to get so many opportunities in your career where that will need to come to the fore. Don't be the bookend sales manager. Yes, don't, <laughs> don't be the bookend. Uh, uh, I always say as well, Ash, I, you know, I say I'm still an SDR today. You know, I forget my job title and whatever it becomes in the future. I'm a lifelong SDR. That's the way I see it in my mind. And uh, that will never, ever change. And, uh, and I love that fact. Ash, I've got one last question for you. This has gone at lightning pace, hasn't it? Um, if you've watched any episodes and you're going to know what's coming, but it's really it's if you were talking to that person out there that wants to go from good to elite level in their career, what your best piece of advice would be to that person? Yeah, great question, Alex. So two key things. One is manage the leading indicators. Don't be worried about trailing indicators or anything like that, trailing revenue or anything. Just focus on yourself and what you can what you can do every day to move the ball forward. And then the second piece of advice is don't be afraid of failure. Like I've failed over and over again in my life. Probably you've done the same. If we look at sports stars, my, my favorite sports star of all time was Michael Jordan. His famous quote was, look, He'd missed 9,000 shots in his career. 9,000 shots. Like, he had to take the game-winning shot 26 times, and he failed. He missed it. He lost over 300 games, and yet he's the greatest. So don't be afraid of failure. Embrace it. Keep putting yourself to the plate. Keep swinging at them, and you'll be successful. That's how you wrap up a podcast, Ash. Have you enjoyed being on? I've loved it. Thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. I want you to make one promise to me, Ash, which is one day you got to write a book, man. You got so many, (laughs) so many stories. It'll be criminal not to put it on paper at some point. So hopefully we'll get to all read that one day. Appreciate it, sir. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. So if you've gained any form of value from watching or listening to this today, again, if it's on YouTube, please be sure to smash that like button, comment, share and subscribe. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, please just take two minutes, write us a five star review and help us grow the reach of the Elite Level podcast. Once again, I hope that you've enjoyed and we look forward to seeing you on the next one.